Good afternoon, this is Julian Campbell. Welcome once again to Business, the Law and You. We've got another interesting show lined up for you this week. A bit later in the program, we'll have a look at a couple of our Harvard Business Review tips. This one's talking about know when to leave a conflict at work alone, which is quite interesting. We're also talking with Christina Sikiatis, who's got a couple of very interesting uh, uh, innovations that have happened in the last few weeks. But right now, we're going to have a chat with Tony Vidray from AV Chartered Accountants. Good afternoon, Tony. Good afternoon, Julian. How are you? I'm very well, and thank you once again for joining us for the uh, last uh, show for, for you for the end of this for this year. Yes, it's been a pleasure all year. So uh, you've got a couple of interesting little comments. First of all, motorcycle gang members. Yes, I thought we'd end the year with a couple of quirky um, stories in the uh, in the area of tax that um, may not um, capture capture everyone's attention initially, but certainly catches mine. I always find these sort of things quite amusing. So there's a um, an article that outlines that motorcycle gang mem- members are being targeted by the tax office to pay their fair share of tax. So uh, about 200 motorcycle gang members are being targeted in a joint ATR and police force operation uh, for failing to comply with their tax obligations that include lodgement of tax returns, paying taxes on the due date and, and correctly um, declaring all the income um, that they have earned. So... Um, I'm not really sure, um, you know, when these sort of things get handed out at the tax office, how many people put their hand up and say, yeah, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll volunteer to be on on that particular program, especially if they, uh, if the motorcycle gang members default on their tax bill and then all of a sudden someone has to start taking their assets off them. Good luck to you. And, and of course, where does the income come from? Is it legal or illegal? Well, that's an interesting <laughs> one too because I, I, you may know or you, you may have heard many years ago um, someone at the tax office cottoned on to the fact that the, the, the Tax Act speaks about income, full stop. It doesn't yeah. actually distinguish between um, income that someone derives legally um, or illegally. And so all income, they thought they were being clever when they said, right, we're going to go after all income, whether it's legal or illegal. What they didn't realise at the time was that um, a particular drug dealer, um, when he they, they slapped him with an assessment on all of his illegal income, he turned around and said, well, if I'm going to declare that income, I'm going to be able to claim all my tax deductions um, linked in earning that income. And uh, <laughs> it, it went to court and he actually he actually won, and quite rightly he won, because Ooh. that's what the law said. Yeah. And um, it was Peter Costello when he was treasurer said, well, that's against the public interest. So the poor old uh, criminal now has to pay tax on his income and doesn't even get a tax deduction ah. for his expenses in doing so. <laughs> Well, well, talking about criminals, what about account- this accountant who's oh, got a sentence? I can't forget about those criminal accounts as well. Yeah, this is an interesting one. A Sydney accountant um, was convicted um, about a month ago for his role in advising clients on how to hide funds offshore um, in entities in Hong Kong and Switzerland to avoid about $4.5 million worth of tax. So it was about a nine-week trial, and he was found guilty of two counts of um, defrauding the, the Commonwealth. What's interesting about this case is that the, the tax office now are not only going after the taxpayer who who acts you know dishonestly they're also going after in this case a promoter of a of a scheme so if they if the accountants and the lawyers are found to be promoting a scheme where they're avoiding tax they are going to be in the in the firing line as well so he didn't actually do it himself he just uh, advised clients how to do it Facilitator. Yep, that's it. He was the advisor. So yeah, things are really tightened up in in our game as well. We've got to be very careful that we don't advise clients for uh, yeah for anything that's uh, that's illegal. Very interesting. Can he claim under his professional indemnity insurance for 
no, I think it's, <laughs> uh, I think it's excluded. I think it's it automatically. Well, the, the, the PI people just say, no, you're not covered. We're not coming, covering you for these sort of activities. Mm. That's it. Well, okay. Now, this is an interesting uh, case that happened between Alderton and FCT. I thought we'd finish with a case that, that really caught my my attention. Um, a, a young lady by the name of Alderton. She was an 18-year-old girl who entered into a domestic relationship with an older medical professional. So it sort of smacks of uh, Jeffrey Edelson here, and it all has to do around trust distribution. So just to go back a step, if I have a trust and I have income in that trust and I have to distribute that income uh, before the end of each financial year, um, I have to you know, pick beneficiaries to send it to, and usually it's family members. But let's say I do something quite silly and I say, well, I'm going to distribute um, $80,000 to Julian Campbell. Sounds good. Um, and I'm, and, yeah, and I'm not going to tell him about it. And not only that, I'm not going to actually send him any money. Uh. What happens is when I lodge the trust tax return, the tax office eventually follow the trail of money to you and say, well, that's interesting, you um, received supposedly a distribution from the Vidre Family Trust, but you didn't pay tax on it. So that's what's happened in this particular case here. Um, with this young lady. She, the, the relationship ended in 2010, but when the doctor lodged his 2009 um, or the 2009 tax return for the trust, he made a distribution of $80,000 um, to her. She turned around and said, well, I don't know anything about this. And what they tried to do, and, what, and in your case, what you do when you get that assessment is you get your lawyers involved and you disclaim that distribution. You say, look, I, I don't know anything about this. Um, it's ridiculous. I never received the money. <clears throat> pardon me, um, it's not mine, go back to the to the trustee. Now, in your case, um, you'd have a high likelihood of winning. The problem for this young girl was that they had actually shown that he had actually given her 80, more than $80,000 during the year in her bank account. So she was aware of cash coming okay. to her, and when he turned around and, and treated it as a trust distribution, um, she actually got stuck with the tax bill and also a 75% penalty. Wow. For an 18-year-old. So, I mean, so he would presumably he was giving her the money, that was wages, is that? Oh, he, no, he, look, he was just giving her money in her bank okay. account. Okay. But it was quite, when you yeah, read between the lines, it was quite deceptive. At the end yeah. of the day, he was showering her with gifts, but then when the relationship broke down, he went, right, I'll fix you up. Um, <laughs> and he turned around and treated it as, um, a, as trust distributions, didn't tell her, and all of a sudden she, um, got, the bill. Yeah, she, had, she got the tax bill. So, so what, what's the 75% uh, because she hadn't uh, lodged a tax return? Correct, yeah. It was failing to lodge a return, failing to you know deal with it. Now, look, between... If, at the end of the day, I think she will, you know, she to win. against the, the penalties, she will definitely get those, you know, reduced if, in, a, in a nicely worded letter. Um, yeah. But she's stuck with the actual um, primary tax. Yeah. So very, very interesting case to finish the year on. It is, isn't it? All right. Well, thank, thank you very much for your time and uh, on the uh, program over the last uh, 12 months. And uh, you have a, and your family have a great Christmas and we'll chat with you again in February. Yep, thank you very much, Julian. It's been an absolute pleasure, and if I can wish everyone a, a Merry Christmas and stay safe over the, uh, the festive break as well. Thank you. Bye-bye. Cheers. Tony Vidre there from AV Chartered Accountants. Some interesting little pointers there, wasn't they? And uh, as he said, nice way of finishing off uh, accounting for the end of the year. Time to pop over to Christina for our discussion on innovation. Good afternoon, Christina. Good afternoon, Julian. How are you today? I'm very well. You're sitting on the side of the freeway there. 
I am. I've actually pulled in to grab a coffee. How's that? How perfect grab a coffee. is that? Sounds good. So while yeah. you're sipping on that coffee, we've got some uh, interesting uh, little innovative ideas that have come out. Oh, we have. And if you, if you stop and think too much about it, sometimes it can be absolutely mind-blowing. Yeah. So I've been reading about biometric tattoos. And there's a purpose for these um, medicinally and also for the military. There's a company in Texas called Chaotic Moon, and they've made these high-tech temporary tattoos, and they can gather information um, from the wearers such as location, air quality, how healthy they are, what their body temperature is, whether they're hydrated, what the heart rate is. So it can collect all this data. Um, or it's very similar, in fact, really, to, to jaw bones and Fitbits and things like that, but it's, um, it's on a temporary tattoo, and they're not as expensive, um, apparently, as the watches and the and the Fitbits and everything else can be to produce. Um, but basically, the whole thing is that we're moving into bio-wearable technology. I mean, we've been there for a little while, but it's becoming more and more popular. Yeah. Um, people are, are suggesting that we might use them to track our children's whereabouts, um, or potentially they have huge use as far as the military goes. But really what it does is it turns you into almost like a human circuit board, which is a little bit frightening at times. Mm-hmm. Um, at another... Thing that I was reading about, which I think is is um, fantastic and it could go a long way to, to alleviating people's pain, etc. If you think about burns victims, um, is an ingestible stethoscope. So the, um, in Massachusetts, the MIT Lincoln, um, which is very much security based, they do a lot of work around security and tech. But they've got this ingestible stethoscope, and it can again, it measures heart rate, breathing rate, vital signs. You swallow it; it's about as big as an arm, and it's, it's still in the testing phase. Uh, mm. But it, it it means that you don't need to be a woken up. I don't know if you've ever been in hospital and had your vital signs taken every every hour. Yeah. But you don't need to be woken up because it's ingested and it happens automatically. And if you are suffering burns or something like that, um, there's no need for any physical um, touching with the body. So therefore, the pain obviously is um, is a this. lot less. So it wirelessly transmits all the data to machines. And you know, if you if there's any problems, the machines still beep as they do. Um, currently in hospitals. Yeah. Uh, and the last one that I was reading about that I'll tell you about today um, is uh, hooking our brains up to computers and actually being able to control the movement of objects. So they've done this experiment um, in Brooklyn and they hooked up these people to computers and they've got this shark, this, like a shark tank and this fake shark in the tank. Uh, and they can actually control the movement of the shark, sending impulses from their brains to the computer that they then get transmitted to the shark. Yeah. So the shark's moving in the direction of, you know, wherever you're wanting to send it. And it's the first phase really into being able to control all our devices with our minds. So it's just mind-boggling what people are working on out there. So a lot of those science fiction things that we see on movies uh, almost coming to, to reality, although, of course, yep. there's, there's the interface of the computer there. That's right. And, uh, you know, I think actually maybe that imagination and that science fiction aspect is what really triggers us off on all these adventures and all these journeys into into craziness or, you know, wild spaces that are, A, very beneficial for humanity. Um, you know, as we've said before, the best, the best outcomes will be when our humanity marries with all these technological issues that we're working with. But I suppose, uh, you know, with that sort of thing, it means that you would be able to control certain devices. So if you're, for example, driving, you could control the radio or something like that by thinking rather than having to take your mind off the road and, or your eyes off the road and, and look at the controls. That's true, that's true, except I think we'll be in driverless cars, so it won't really matter what we're doing <laughs> in the car, really, will it? Well, uh, well you know then what? we might be driving the car with our minds. 
we could possibly be doing that, in which case maybe it is, it is um, less beneficial to be controlling an animated object like a car with our brains at that point of time. Um, thought we might just finish off too, Julian, with a couple of uh, little funny things that um, have happened this week. So the, 21st, the list of 20 best ads of the 21st century have come, has come out. Uh, and Australia has a feature, got a Guernsey in it, with the Dumb Ways to Die um, yeah. commercial. Or, enter, they're actually calling them entertainment, almost entertainment um, aspects, because it, it is quite, it's delivering a serious message in a way that a lot of people will listen. So, there was Dumb Ways to Die was up there, the old spice ad that was a string of totally irrelevant sentences strung together by a very good looking um, male. Yeah, but, uh, that, the but that, West, that particular one was on, uh, on YouTube and it had something like uh, 50 million hits, wasn't it? It did, and I was trying to skirt over that one, but now that you've mentioned it, it had so many hits it was absolutely unbelievable um the other one again on youtube that has had quite a few hits is the um jean van damme one where he's riding the two trucks he's standing up in the middle of the two trucks that one's 81 uh, million hits it, unbelievable it's just you know and they say the power of media it's just incredible the way um people are actually watching these and endorsing them and going to them for and it is a bit of entertainment you know yeah. actually watch it we're also watching the behind the scenes of how these things are made as well, which is quite um, intriguing. Uh, well, and well that would that would certainly be a good one because you know a lot of people say, "Was was that real?" That the Van Damme was it real? Or, or I know it was real, but uh, yeah. Uh, question really is, how many Volvo trucks were sold as a result of it? Well, the, as far as advertising goes, yeah. I mean, and there's the whole Fun Factory thing that they're not sure now because they've had millions and millions and millions of hits for um, Fun equating to Volkswagen and where that's led now with all the, the um, all the issues that have come up with the Volkswagen yeah. eco issues. Yeah. But the last one was the, um, the John West one where they're fighting the bear, the bear and the fishermen are fighting for the same oh, yes. and I thought that was quite quite oh, yeah. funny as well. Yeah. So that was up there in that, in that category. But it is interesting. We are wanting to delve behind the scenes. So there were a lot, there were lots and lots of queries about whether that um, one with him in the middle of the two trucks was real. So they mm. went to great pains to, to show sure people how it was done and that it was real, yeah. Right. Well, thanks for your time. You have a safe trip to Sydney. We'll have a chat with you next week. Thank you. Have a great week. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Christina Cicciotis there with a couple of interesting uh, innovations that are coming out. It's amazing the way the human mind goes sometimes, isn't it? Well, we've got time for a couple of our Harvard Business Review tips and uh, this one I thought was an interesting one which said know when to leave a conflict at work alone. You've probably heard that the only way to deal with work disagreements is to set things straight right away. While dealing with conflict directly is often the most effective route, there are times when it's better to do nothing. The goal of engaging in a conflict discussion is to reach a resolution. So it's probably not worth having that talk if you suspect that the other person isn't interested in addressing the issue or is unwilling to have a constructive conversation. You should also leave a conflict alone if you yourself don't have the energy or time to invest in preparing for and having a productive conversation. And it's probably a good idea to avoid conflict discussion if you have little or no power, such as when you're dealing with someone above you. Just keep in mind that this approach won't work if you can't put the disagreement behind you. So there are times when we have those little conflicts and we're not quite sure how to deal with them. Sometimes leaving them alone for a while might resolve it.
And this one here, three mistakes to avoid when taking over a team. Taking over as a leader of a team is daunting. Your team members are used to how the previous leader liked to do things and adjusting their habits can be a challenge. But it's important to avoid three common mistakes that new leaders make when trying to ease the transition. First of all, being a friend rather than a leader. Investing too much energy in befriending the team can confuse the power relationship. Most teams want clear, confident leadership. Secondly, expressing frustration with the quality of the team. When team members are good at it, it is a reflection of the previous leaders expected of them. If your expectations are different, you need to help the team make the shift. And thirdly, attempting to force trust too quickly. Until team members have time to see how you handle uncomfortable topics, too much candour will do more harm than good. Let trust build over time. So a couple of interesting points there. And thank you for being with me for the last half hour. I hope you've enjoyed the program. In a moment, Dave Cochran will be back with you with more of your easy listening favourites. Next week, we'll have another chat with Steve Markey about insurance, the Minute on Innovation with Christina, and we'll look at some business and legal news and views that might affect your business. I'd love your company again for business, the law and you at the same time next week. Until then, have an exciting and prosperous week. And as Henry Ford once said, obstacles are those frightful things you see when you take your eyes off the goal.